Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Danny, hello. Hey, Sam. You know what film I rewatched this week? What did you rewatch? 12 Monkeys. Hmm. And I knew our listeners were just waiting for my 12 Monkeys hot take 23 years after the film was released. Yeah, we normally save the correspondence section until after the uh, introduction, but... It's mainly just questions about when you're going to talk about 12 Monkeys. <laughs> I would say the movie is pretty good. It holds up. Yeah. Some elements dated. But have you seen it? Yeah, but I saw it, I saw it quite a long time ago. I don't have the strongest recollection of the movie. So Bruce Willis, in the future, there's been some some virus was released in 997. The crazy distant future of 997, which decimated the population. Everyone lives underground. And they send Bruce Willis back to get information about the virus so they can cure it in the future. And then there's this whole element about whether the scenes set in the future are just in Bruce Willis's head, he's just a crazy person in the present day. Yeah. But I think the movie, I mean, far be it for me to diss Terry Gilliam at the height of his powers. It was a huge commercial and critical success. But by, the movie clearly wants the audience to believe it is set in the future. Yeah. Whereas if it was just all set in the present day and he talks about being from the future, the whole theme of whether he's crazy or not, I think would be stronger. So, Terry, if you're listening, if you want to go back and cut out the more visually spectacular scenes from that movie, you make think, it half an it hour shorter. You think it more of a K-Pax style film? Yeah, I think it's just it's just no K-Pax, it's is no, it? It's no K-Pax. <laughs> it's no K-Pax. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, I would say it's not it's not a K-Pax. Do you know what does hold up, though? Bruce Willis's performance. He's, he's brilliant in that movie. Is it as good as... Kevin Spacey's performance in the film K-Pax. I mean, I mean, he's no, he's no Spacey in K-Pax. I mean, I mean, who is? Who is? Who's Spacey in K-Pax? But it's, it's I don't of, know. <laughs> who is the modern Spacey in K-Pax? <laughs> Who's the contemporary equivalent? Oh, that's an impossible question. Yeah. But yeah, I think his performance is a bit like Unbreakable. It's kind of like vulnerable Bruce. And he really sells it. Husky Bruce. Yeah, Husky Bruce. He's kind of whispery and sad. Mm. He's very good at it. And Brad Pitt also, quite a sort of atypical role for him as a sort of weird eco-terrorist guy. I mean, there's a lot of acting going on. Everyone's doing their thing they're not normally doing. That's great. That's what you want. uh, And the lead uh, female actress, Madeline Stowe, what happened to her? She's so good in the movie. That name rings a bell. She done... She's in Shortcuts and she was just like had this moment in the 90s and it seemed to have disappeared and i don't know what she's been in recently the men in the movie are still famous but the woman giving a very good performance is not i guess even a movie set in the future is not progress i don't know where i'm going with this (laughs) i felt i felt like that was gonna really land yeah but it didn't quite yeah chicken out there at the end a little bit so that's my opinion on 12 monkeys good to hear it 
Um, so I've been thinking about twelve monkeys so much. I've actually forgotten what what I'm doing here. This is about is this about twelve monkeys? Partly, uh, but it's also a podcast all about the dangerous and cold blooded arms dealer Danny Moran, who is getting rid of his competitors and adversaries with an army of highly trained killers. Next on his list is Prince Sam Foster, whose location Moran has already tracked down and is planning to attack. But Sam survives the bombing of his castle and flees to the CIA headquarters in New York, which is not where the CIA's headquarters are, but this could be a reference to their head office in New York or something. Uh, And while there, he learns that Danny possesses a serum that could be turned into a biological weapon of mass destruction. After surviving a second murder attempt, Sam decides to face Danny and goes in for a counterattack. So what I would be saying if this podcast was an adaptation of the 1991 film, The Eye of the Widow, which is just some fucking film (laughs) (laughs) with no one famous in it. Uh, Instead, it's just a podcast in which we talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster. And joining me, uh, uh, a dangerous and cold-blooded arms dealer who's getting rid of his competitors and adversaries, Danny Moran. That's me. That's me. So, on this episode, we will be reviewing Widows, the latest film from 12 Years a Slave director, Steve McQueen. Why are we reviewing it? Because nobody thinks we have the balls to pull it off. (laughs) Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. We also review British horror indie film Possum, which is the directorial debut of Garth Marini co-creator Matthew Holness. Your enjoyment of the film will basically depend on your answer to the following question. Do you want to see an episode of Garth Marini which features no jokes? Not one single joke completely humorless very dark very dark and i will be reviewing wildlife which is the directorial debut of cherubic faced actor paul dano which stars jake gyllenhaal and carrie milligan as a couple in the 60s who aren't happy when dano discovers that the television series man exists he's gonna be pissed because (laughs) a lot of the same ground has been covered plus a discussion of a proposed bill hicks biopic a proposed Bill Hicks biopic. Bill Hicks biopic. It's going to Bill Hicks biopic, and a serious four-hour-long debate about the ethics of superhero movies. All of which should leave me just enough time to tape up my latest film based on the recent U.S. midterm elections. It's called How Do You Like Damn Apples. That's good. It's going to star Matt Damon and Deborah Messing. I haven't worked out the plot. But I'm very excited about it. Can't <laughs> wait to put pen to paper and really nail the times. Zeitgeisty. That's how I describe the script. Really, really ripped from the headlines, but like tomorrow's headlines. So oh, when you shit. watch it, you're like, what? And like, it's going to, yeah, just really encapsulate the time which is made. Taking it out on Trump, empowering the youth. That guy, Ted Cruz, is going to watch it. And he's just going to just melt because it's going to be, oh, my life is meaningless. Whoa, is, what? It, is it all going to be through the, like, the metaphor of scrumping or something? Yeah. Or like the cider making process, or something like the that. The apple takes a lot of different metaphorical, you know, well, you got meanings. Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden. Um, um, keeping the doctor away. Keeping the doctor away. <laughs> Just a general metaphor about America's uh, farmland. New York. Is New a, York. That's a big one. That's a big one. <laughs> you know, it's very flexible as an image. The computer, Silicon Valley, Apple computers. <laughs> Uh, the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sort of uh, radio. Uh, sorry, recording label. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of skeks go going into this on. film. And do you know why I'm doing it? Because no one thinks I have the balls <laughs> to do it. Films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good.
films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John Woo films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, films short, films six hours long, we've got films up to your gills with films, 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 So no one really corresponded with us, but I was corresponding with a lot of people, which is the same thing, basically. And the film journalist Helen O'Hara, who works for Empire, uh, retweeted this article about whether uh, superheroes cause more damage than good in superhero movies. Like, you know, they're always blowing up cities or whatever while trying to defeat the bad guy. And she pointed out this is kind of stupid because had they not been stopping the bad guy, the entire world would be decimated. So it's a real, uh, you know, you've got to look at the worst case scenario. Yeah. And I responded saying, I thought the more interesting question in the whole, are superheroes really the villains route, is whether superheroes only maintain the status quo. Yes, they're purely reactive. They're purely reactive. And we had like a brief back and forth for like in the Marvel Universe, like Tony Stark's sort of, there's lines about him funding clean energy and he funds those MIT students at the beginning of Civil War. Yeah. I did read some piece that was basically saying he was modeled on Elon Musk from the beginning. <laughs> He's Elon Musk is, is the one who's going to save us. Well, Elon Musk in, is Iron Man. In that, like, in the, in the first movie, that was at a time when Elon Musk type people had a better reputation than they do now. <laughs> and so it sort of mirrors Iron Man's, you know, uh, the, the, the different lens through which you see his character from the first movie to the present. I don't even remember exactly how this argument played <laughs> out, but <laughs> yeah, that, that Silicon Valley tech billionaire tech will save us thing is very much present in the yeah in the movies. But I do think it's a kind of interesting question. And maybe not so much with the Marvel characters because they're always fighting sort of alien threats. Whereas the whole Batman thing is he's fighting criminals, but is he fighting the causes of crime? I mean, he's a billionaire. He's tough on crime, but he's... is he tough on the causes of crime? <laughs> Exactly. He's only, got, he's only got half the equation. He brands uh, pedophiles so they'll be killed in jail. <laughs> but is he tough? Does he brand the causes of pedophiles so they'll be killed in jail? Exactly. Is he branding the <laughs> child pornography? I mean, what, what that it does he, I don't know what that means, but why isn't he doing that? You're right. Why good, isn't it he is doing, a good question. Good though. question. You know, this is like really getting very nerdy about it. Remember the movie Batman Begins? Yes. And there's a bit where he basically becomes like a sort of homeless guy in uh, Tibet or something. Uh-huh. And he's like, there's a bit where he's like, I made, you know, a few of my assumptions about criminals uh, were gone because he has to, like, steal food to survive. That's right, yeah. The first time I stole so that I wouldn't starve, yes, I lost many assumptions about the simple nature of right and wrong. But then, like, they weren't really gone because when he goes to Gotham, he's like, everyone's a criminal, should be, like, beaten up and locked in jail. It's like, <laughs> don't think you really learn, you know, that crime isn't some sort of you know, manif- like the Joker, I guess, is an easy villain for him because he's just a force of chaos. But most yeah. criminals, it comes from somewhere, right? He doesn't like, spend any time on prison reform. Yeah, exactly. You know, which he could do. Yeah. Yeah. I think the related ethical debate that's uh, kind of been staged in Marvel uh, superhero movies is like whether explosions are good or bad. Because yeah. the explosions are very exciting. But then in Civil War, they was kind of asking the question, like, were there too many explosions? And were they... Were they were they were they not worth it? Yeah. But then in Black Panther, 
that kind of there's a bit of a debate that goes on about political violence in that that's sort of isolationism versus interventionism sort of theme in that one there's 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 that kind of geopolitical theme but there's also that um kind of emancipatory debate over like how you you know how you liberate people and like what forms of struggle are appropriate because um uh what's his face killmonger is a kind of you know violent revolutionary by any means necessary yeah well he, he he thinks that uh liberating black people requires like armed struggle and you should over- overthrow your your oppressors so he causes some like explosions and deaths and stuff but that's that's bad that is bad but uh, but yeah i mean maybe the whole the whole what what they're really just tending towards is just no explosions anymore they're just going to cut them all out like the superheroes can't do them and the villains can't do them they're bad all round yeah with like when i was talking to helen horror about this talking is probably stretching it sending two or three tweets back and forth and this is a very stupid nitpick but you know how uh don Cheadle, um what's his name Rhodes, roadie roadie war machine Rhodes. he was basically lost the use of his legs in civil war and now he can walk again because he's got a pair of high-tech robot legs yeah like can everyone get robot legs in the marvel universe like or does tony Stark just made one pair for his mate like <laughs> this sort of life-changing de- you know device just kind of conquering disability yeah like, i mean i genuinely want to know if like I think like the only the only way it really works is that he is kind of set up as a as a kind of narrow slightly sort of narrow minded and selfish person who doesn't really understand what he's doing, you know. Yeah. So and that's how you're able to tolerate him as a hero who otherwise, you know, would be morally reprehensible on the grounds that he's a billionaire and could change a lot of people's lives and he just doesn't do it. I feel like, you know, Captain America probably can't change that many people's lives. Yeah, Unless yeah. there's a lot of people who need to be like have their trucks pulled out of lakes or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. If you have the power to change something, great power, great responsibility. So like, uh, you know, in terms of influence over human lives, Iron Man has got a lot more than Captain America does. And does he use it? Does he use it? No, he spends uh, you know a billion on that new Avengers facility or whatever. Did they need that new facility? What's wrong <laughs> with that fucking tower? It seemed pretty sweet. It seemed pretty fine. You already had a skyscraper in New York. Do you really need another headquarters? Yeah. Like it's so and big. In, uh, it's, it's, it's so big. There's only in, about five Avengers. In Spider-Man: Homecoming, right? He fucks over all the blue-collar workers at the beginning. Yeah. He takes the contract for the messy. That's one, that's one of the things I liked about that movie is the idea that, like, in the background, in his like day-to-day business dealings, he's just a rapacious capitalist who's, you know, just acts like any other big corporation. I mean, he doesn't run it on the in you know the law now. It's all run by Pepper Potts according according to the movies. But it's like. If you just leave it ticking over, they'll just fuck people over because that's the nature of big business. So they will just, you know, they'll rip you off. So I kind of like that that's happening in the background. So to conclude, so to conclude, I'm just they're, they're not it, heroes. It up to you. He should be doing more with his wealth and his influence. Real heroes change the world. Yeah. You know, not, I mean, not like create killer robots. I mean, like in a positive way. One rather good point I thought was made by one of the nerds who chimed in on the conversation you were having with Helen O'Hara was uh, highlighting the line of dialogue in Avengers Age of Ultron when Ultron says something like, You want to protect the world, but you don't want it to change. Yeah. Good point, Ultron. Maintain the status quo. The world is unequal. Yeah. It's got to change. I think that is the other thread you can see running through the Marvel movies is a depiction of the desire to change the world as villainous or at least dangerous yeah that's how they get away with all these or they, they have all these villains who are like i really understand their motives but they're also supreme evil like thanos killmonger and ultron are all like they yeah. want they all want to change the world yeah you know they're they've all, got they, agency they've, they've, they've got they've got political programs shouldn't have one of those yeah it's just too dangerous don't do it 
Killmonger, um, Killmonger was right. So was Thanos. No explosions, no politics. You just need to be a cop. Yeah. That's why Ozymandias and Watchmen is actually the hero. Yes. Because he's willing to take the hit. <laughs> yeah. For the good of mankind. He'd be a hero if he had died in the psychic alien explosion attack. He'd be a martyr. Nah, he's got to make sure it's all fine afterwards, hasn't he? got to sort it out. Can't you just, like, you know, leave, leave it He's like his... Magneto in the first X-Men, where like, Wolverine's <laughs> like, you're so full of shit. If you really believe what you espoused, he'd be you in that chair. Exactly. That's a good That's a good line. Yeah. Great line. God, what a... They're, they're, they're really... They're, they're so really clever, aren't they? <laughs> this, is, this is real cinema. Yeah. This is, how much... Wait, how long have we been talking about this? Can we continue for another, like, 25 minutes? I'm just scratching the surface here. Scrap the next few sections. Scrap the reviews. I need to get in deep on this. Spoiler special. But the spoiler's just my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. <I'm> fucking genius. <laughs> so sit back, relax, enjoy the ride. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Superhero films announced. Casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. So, how would you use this? Um, so, so, Richard Linklater didn't win an Oscar for Boyhood over Inurito. Outrage. Outrageous. Um, and since then, he's made flags of last flag flying, and he's always got a little bunch of stuff in the work. Everybody, Everybody wants some. some. That wasn't that good, but he's always interesting, and I just generally like his style. So I'm always excited to see what he's doing next. But I'm not so excited about this one. So apparently, he's. I'm gonna, always excited, except this time. Apparently, he's going to direct a biopic of the iconoclastic comedian Bill Hicks, who, if you're not familiar with rose to prominence in the late 80s and early 90s, was big in the UK, never quite made it in America in his own lifetime because he died tragically young at the age of 32 in 1994. And his comedy was sort of angry, angry at the man, speaking truth to power. Grouchy, sclerotic. Grouchy, scabrous, very, very funny, very, very dark, and very influential in that a lot of people basically copied his shtick and aren't as good at it as him. Yeah, like um, Doug Stanhope is very Bill Hicks. Yeah, that's not. very true. Um, yeah, we know very little about what it's going to entail. I mean, he only lived for 32 years, so I guess that's a shorter canvas in which to make a biopic of. Any 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 film about a real person who died young just gives you a nice little full stop for your movie. <laughs> exactly, good ending. Good ending. Um, yeah, the thing about Bill Hicks is that friend friend of the show, Dan, once said this thing to me, which I thought was like such a good point very true it's like he said like i like bill hicks but i don't like people who like bill hicks mm. and it's, he's definitely someone who attracts bad fans it's like that thing about like you know fight club is a good movie but if you go to someone's house and they've got a big poster of it you know leave get, get out, get of out. <laughs> yeah in that i imagine like jonathan pye loves bill hicks yeah in that there's a sort of ranting at the crazy uh world and hypocrisy of power or whatever and i feel a lot of people like take a shtick and forget to include the jokes yeah uh, and it's that kind of proto-angry rant thing, which feels so... Just everywhere now. Everywhere and very tired. And also, I just don't know... He's quite a confessional comedian. You get, like, his whole thing's built around his personality. So I don't know how a biopic would be any better than just one of his stand-up albums. Right. It's not going to be like The Life of Death and Peter Sears or something, where it's, <laughs> like, you know, behind the cloud or something. like. Yeah. 
Yeah, he goes. I mean, he's, he's miserable on stage, and he goes like backstage, and he's still miserable. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's the thing is going to be that every time he's not on stage, he's like really happy-go-lucky, and he wears like really brightly colored shirts, and you know, doesn't smoke. Well, that's just the kind of whole problem with biobooks in general, really. Like creative people, there's only like a few that are good. I think for that reason, it's like you know, watching a film about Johnny Cash isn't as good as listening to an album by him. Yeah, probably get more sense of the man from his music than some heavily fictionalized rattling through the events of his life it's like you know he was a bit messed up and like he had a dark side it's like yeah i mean listen to any of his music is yeah um and it just seems especially true of like a stand-up comedian unless you listen to like i walk the line and you're like i really get this guy he's such a faithful person (laughs) he never cheated on his wife yeah and uh with bill hicks i don't know i don't know i don't know how you would do it in a way that's justifies his existence like, well how do you point? think how do you think the bill hicks attitude melds with richard linklater's style his kind of like quite relaxed sort of conversational dudes who are you know rather chilled out um, i mean i mean how, how much sort of uh nihilism is in <laughs> is in linklater's movies really they're quite sort of chilled out kind of humanist pieces i mean he was like bill hicks was all for like peace and love a bit of a sort of hippie yeah. side to him which kind of chimes with like Richard Linklater's like a sort of died in the wall Austin hippie himself. So yeah, neither is can... probably the wrong word. Like misanthropy is something. Yeah, maybe what I was thinking. Um, I don't know. I just don't think. I don't see how it could be good. You know, the facts of his life is like you know he went had a nice family and then he decided to become a stand up comedian and like didn't go very well and then it did. You know, I'm not sure you create great drama <laughs> out of that. Like the thing that's interesting about it is, is his perspective, not the facts of his life. It's his outlook, uh, you know, and it's not going to be more articulately put than by himself. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So what's the point? Well, we'll see what we'll Linklater see. can do Yeah, with this. By the way, if anyone here is in marketing or advertising, <laughs> kill yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Just planting seeds. Planting seeds is all I'm doing. <laughs> No joke here, really. Seriously, kill yourself. You are no rationalization for what you do. You are Satan's little helpers. <laughs> kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself now. Now, back to the show. Okay, back to the world of blockbusters. More <laughs> comfortable ground for me. Um, away from the uh, art house obscurities like Richard Linklater. <laughs> whatever the fuck that guy is. Um, Disney is plotting their um, uh, Death Star of content to... Uh, destroy the uh, Alderaan the of Alderaan all of minds <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of Netflix I don't know uh, and um, they they basically will be launching a kind of direct competitor to Netflix called Disney Plus which is going to be coming out in 2019 and uh, it's going to they're basically going to be competing by presumably withdrawing all of their great stuff because they own everything now and sure. you won't be able to catch all their cool things on Netflix anymore. And they will also have a bunch of new things that you will only be able to see on their content because everybody's got their own, their I'm own excited, I'm excited. Okay. Know, prestige dramas now. Of course. So, two different television series set in the Star Wars universe oh, yes, yes, yes! Have, have been announced. Oh my god! Each sounds more required viewing than, <laughs> than the last. We've got to forty. Okay, so uh, here's one. Um, I don't know if we mentioned this before, but it's going to be directed by uh, John Favreau. Or, oh, or wow! Oh no, he'll, he'll sorry, he'll be writing it and will be executive yes. producing it. Yes. And it's called The Mandalorian. It's going to be an eight-episode spin-off television series set in the Marvel universe. Would you like to know who the Mandalorians are? The Marvel universe. The Star Wars universe. <laughs> Excuse me. Wrong universe. 
Uh, well, yeah, what, what are the Mandalorians? They're a race that inhabit the planet Mandalore, a remote celestial body that resides in the Outer Rim territories. They were a warmongering society made up of fearsome warriors known throughout the galaxy. In the film universe, two Mandalorians are prominently featured, Jango Fett and his son Boba Fett, who's what? a clone of him. Yeah, yeah, I remember. That's making them the same. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even need two names, really. So, <laughs> is every conversation going to be like, do you want to... I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah, they always they keep finishing each other's sandwiches. The series is going to take place right after the fall of the Empire in Return of the Jedi, but before the emergence of the villainous First Order in Star Wars 7. So don't tell me what you think about that. Just keep your thoughts to yourself for the moment. Okay. Because there's another offering. This is going to be another spin-off series. And actually, that prequel series, in fact. I don't think we know what this is going to be called, but it will focus on... Cassian Andor. Who is that, you ask? <laughs> he is the dude from Rogue One, played by Diego Luna. Yes. Uh, sort of like vaguely Harrison Ford-esque kind of character. Yeah, yeah. Sort of rebel pilot guy. Yeah, cool rebel pilot guy. Yeah. Uh, this new series will be a rousing spy thriller that will explore tales filled with espionage and daring missions to restore hope to a galaxy in the grip of a ruthless empire. It will be set before Rogue One, itself set before <laughs> A New Hope, making it a prequel to the prequel. So two diff- very different time periods here, fleshing the universe out. <laughs> so which of these do you, like, what tickles your fancy more? A rousing spy thriller starring Diego Luna or just, um, you know, warmongering uh, bounty hunters? No, it's all the same, isn't it? <laughs> Does it really no, matter? I've just explained. They're completely different. Bounty um, hunters or spies? <laughs> Choose one. Uh, bounty hunters. <laughs> Good choice. Great choice. I don't know. It just sounds rubbish, doesn't it? I don't know. It's just more stuff. You can't just get away from stuff, it. Just more stuff. Just content. Just content. Endless, endless, endless content. I do think it's something very strange about these Star Wars movies and TV shows. And it reminds me of these plans to make all these Game of Thrones kind of prequel series where you just have like these franchises were existing in the same timeline, but like hundreds of years apart. But like all this prequels, it doesn't really matter because you're watching the stuff happen in the sort of present timeline. Yeah. It's like everyone, everyone in that show you love, they're all dead now. So it's like, <laughs> so what does it really matter? You know, the empire rises, the, they blow up the death star. I guess you have to just get invested in the characters and their journeys. I mean, the the Clone Wars TV show was really successful, I guess. So oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. I guess, I did you not, know. Did not watch that. But apparently it was good. So, whatever. I don't know. Do you think we're just old? Do you reckon, like, there's a kid, it'll be his favourite thing in the world, but I'm just a bit old and jaded and a bit sort of fatigued now a little bit. So it's just a bit overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like partly it's sort of the audience is starting to feel like like scraps that are being fought over you know just feel like there's like things are constantly being shoved in my face being like watch me you know join my uh, proprietary subscription model and like cancel your subscription to the others and like i don't know it's not how i want to engage with culture you know so we're all gonna let me let me let me you know take it at my own pace stop bombarding me with things to binge I feel like the whole binge-watching thing is just out of control now. I <laughs> <laughs> don't know where I am. I don't know where I am anymore. Yeah, it's, it's out of control. It's, just, it's nuts. Yeah, it's nuts, isn't it? It's just bewildering. But saying that I'm very excited for it. I'm yeah. counting down the days. Sure, absolutely. I mean, when you got Favreau on board, I mean, he doesn't just make average movies, does he? <laughs> <laughs> no, certainly not. Not Favreau. He's, got an, he's an exacting master of his craft. Um, Remember Cowboys and Aliens? 
versus aliens versus aliens yeah. yeah cowboys and aliens is a much more cooperative film i mean the whole star wars thing was like a western in space but he's kind of already done that and it was the best movie made that year so <laughs> i can't imagine it not being amazing that's she here's to the mandalorians here's to the mandalorians my favorite film stars bridget bardo she's the queen that she wants to be in radio so she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end possum that's an animal and a film directed by matthew holness the creator of garth Marenghi's dark place the comedy uh who i also remember being one of the talking heads on time trumpet back in the day and he's his, in the office he's just a general a one of, of those one of oxbridge com- guys who won the fringe and then, yeah. yeah yeah um and he obviously his uh, work on dark place came from a place of genuine love <laughs> of, darkness of, of darkness <laughs> a place of genuine darkness and he's now uh, channeling that into his directorial debut possum he's made a short film before called gun for george and now he's expanding uh, his work Stars Sean Harris as a man who carries a big uh, bag around containing a puppet, which he sort of takes out sometimes and looks at. And it's very sort of moody and scary. And he lives in a really run-down looking house, needs a lick of paint, and a general needs a woman's touch, in my opinion. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, with uh, Alan Armstrong's character, he's a kind of like crotchety old guy, who, and then they sort of have quite elliptical uh, conversations. Uh, here's a clip. Hungry? No. Roast fox. Funny. Dismantling it, are you? A long time, yeah. Pity. Puppetry's the one thing you were good at. Staying, are you? For a while. My house. It's, it's, it's dark, isn't it? It's dark. It's, it's, dark. Mo- it's dark and moody. It's a moody drama. Um, I didn't really get into it, <laughs> <laughs> this film. I wasn't really a huge fan of it. I think um, my main gripe with it is that it felt like a short film that had been stretched into a feature. It's based on a novella, I believe. Or something. Yeah. And I just didn't feel like there was the material for a full movie here. I mean, it's only 83 minutes long, so it's quite short, but it like felt like it, they had to find things to fill the time. Um, and it's the kind of palettes that the movie was drawing on both like visually and in terms of the like dramatic action felt quite limited it got repetitive quite quickly i really liked sean harris in it i thought he was really good doing a huge variety of tortured facial expressions and grumbling along like i I thought you know he was putting in a really committed performance in in a lot of scenes where he has nothing to act with besides a puppet which is generally not animated (laughs) um uh, or like a bag or he's just staring at a book or whatever um and Anna armstrong is you know brings quite a lot of menace into uh like his little scenes but it just didn't really get its claws into me and i guess your mileage may vary on that um i imagine for some people it would have sort of cast a particular spell over them but um for me, I just sort of started to think that it was, this movie has run out of tricks, basically, and that every scene, when every scene begins, I kind of know what's <laughs> going to play out now. It's going to be another version of the things that we've seen already. Um, yeah. So it started to drag quite quickly. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's very, like, moody, and it's very beautifully shot in, like, 35 millimeter, and it was all shot, like, by the Norfolk Broads, and whoever the DOP is, haven't bothered to research it, did a great job. And the score by the Radiophonic Workshop, 
the legendary Radiophonic Workshop, who used to do the soundtrack to Doctor Who and other sort of cool sci-fi shows for the Beeb. It's very atmospheric. I thought the last scene was quite bad in that... It is bad, yeah. <laughs> like, if you're... um. If the movie's working for you, it can be read in a lot of different ways, and it's very open-ended. If you're if you like the movie, it's ambiguous. If you don't like the movie, it's frustratingly vague, and it doesn't have anything to say. But the ending invites you to interpret the film in a certain way, which kind of destroys that. Yeah, all I it had to go for it was mood, and it sort of. Well, yeah, I think it falls into the trap. Like it's not just like a tone poem of a movie, but it, it falls into this trap of like uh, treating symbolism like a code that you just have to unlock. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just invites you to kind of piece together various facts from the, you know, clues presented to you. And I just always find that, like, a little bit limiting when there's only going to be so many horrifying truths, you know, in the basement. And it's never going to be that exciting to find out what they actually are. Yeah. I mean, it does, like, it is, like, really well made. And I kind of, I'm just, like, I kind of, this is a stupid i'm glad it exists in a way you know what i mean like as for like the, a, the, the classic small british film review <laughs> yeah. yeah like yeah. but it's not just like another like half-assed you know people hanging out in coffee shops or yeah i don't know it has something going for it in a yeah, way. yeah yeah that's true and uh yeah when i saw it i'd already had like three pints which i think was a good way to see the movie <laughs> like my brain activity had slowed at a point where i was appreciating all the i was definitely with it for the first like half of it but yeah, like like we just said, it, it doesn't stick the landing. So I felt like if it got a bit more interesting, I would have really liked it. But I was kind of waiting for it to like spin off the rails. Yeah. I don't know if that's just because that's the kind of movie I like. Yeah. But um, yeah, I was I felt like it was giving me morsels, and I was like, can't wait for this movie to completely lose its shit. And it just felt like it didn't. Yeah. But it's available on demand. Go su- support British independent films and just buy it. Don't even, don't watch it, but just buy it from iTunes. Would you like to know who the very good cinematographer was? Yeah. Kit Fraser. Kit Fraser did a great job. Watch out for the work of Kit Fraser. Kit Fraser knocked out of the park. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ass-clenchingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. Wildlife. This is the directorial debut of Paul Dano, based on the book of the same name by Richard Ford, adapted the screen by Paul Dano and his girlfriend or possible wife, Zoe Kazan. Uh, it's about 14... I've got the official synopsis. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. 14-year-old Joe is the only child of Jeanette and Jerry. They're played by Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal, respectively. A housewife and a golf pro in a small town in 1960s Montana. Nearby, an uncontrollable forest fire rages close to the Canadian border, and when Jerry loses his job and his sense of purpose, he decides to join the cause of fighting the fire, leaving his wife and son to fend for themselves. Suddenly forcing the role of an adult, Joe witnesses his mother's struggle as she tries to keep her head above water. Here is a clip of Jerry telling the family that he's going off to fight these fires, and she's like, what? Talk to your father. Tell him not to act like a fool. I am not being foolish. I put my name on a list, I waited for my chance, and now they finally have a place for me. You don't know anything about fires. You'll get burned up. Well, I've been reading about them. I know enough. <laughs> You've been reading about them? You've been studying up? Don't turn my words on me, Gene. Dad, what's going on? Your father is leaving us to go and fight those wildfires. What? Dad, why? Ask him, Jerry. You won't take a job at a grocery store, but you'll go out with a bunch of deadbeats and risk getting killed. Gene, I have to go there and leave this. What does it pay? What? What does it pay? 
dollar an hour. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Great acting. I mean, this is a movie, I know this, it feels like a bit of a cliche where like every uh, actor turned director make like performance-driven films. And this is definitely the case here. So basically, my general take on the movie is that it's a very solid if somewhat unremarkable drama where I wouldn't be able to fault many of the elements that make it up, but it just lacks something to make it memorable. And I would describe it as kind of like a solid overlong episode of Mad Men. It's kind of plowing that same field. Is that an expression people use? Yeah. Furrow. Furrow. Yeah. Plowing that same furrow, that Mad Men furrow, which feels overly plowed, but, but, but he's still plowing it. He's still plowing it. Yeah. So like I said, it's a performance driven movie and the performances are excellent. Jay Journal is becoming one of my favorite actors. He's always giving a performance. He's never half-arsing it. And he has very little screen time. He's, he's I think he's inching closer to Tom Hardy the longer his career goes on. <laughs> yeah, he's doing more stuff. Yeah. But I, I thought he like really etched the character Joe really well. And he's quite a classic kind of tragic figure, sort of trapped by his masculinity. And in that clip you heard, it's like he'd rather work for pedants doing a quote-unquote man's job of fighting a fire than earn more money like bagging groceries that's like a you know a boy's job and he's just sort of trapped between his own inner demons and his pride felt very grounded character mm. and i was just like, every time he was on screen i was like this is very watchable look at him go look at him do his performance and um carrie mulligan this is probably her best role in ages it feels like often education she was like everywhere but she's often cast as just sort of southern bell kind of characters and i feel like this is a role that she could really sink her teeth into and she is every bit as like flawed and trapped as the male character. And uh, her performance is really enigmatic. You don't really know what her motivations are. And it's a bit like, is she liberated by her husband leaving or is she just more trapped? She's playing a lot of performances in the movie. It's a bit like she's different to her son, who she is to her husband, is the other people she interacts. Like, who is the real Jeanette? And it was like, uh, that was compelling rather than inconsistent. It all felt like the same person, sort of trying on different guises. Uh, that was good. If there is a weak link in this chain of acting, uh, it's the the kid, Ed Oxen something. Don't know how to pronounce his name. Just not very good at acting, I would say. He's got a bit of a thankless role in that he is the sort of audience avatar and he just has to sort of look on at his parents' marriage crumbling and react in various different ways. But I don't think he's much of an actor and on a very not at all... <laughs> good point just found him quite irritating yeah bit of a backfifing physique quite a punchable face oh, sh- yeah even though he's a child even though he's a child he's quite. just got like a very annoying face yeah i what, just sort of face that wants you to makes you want to administer corporal punishment <laughs> i'm just mean like there's a look close up of his face and his a, face is real, just annoying he's got a real birchable yeah ass he's <laughs> just like <laughs> well bad child acting is often something that you know holds movies back um to be fair yeah this is a film which I think like the cliche would describe it as like handsomely mounted. That's a term that gets used a lot in any sort of period piece, which isn't like incredible. It's like it's a very handsomely mounted adaptation. And it is beautifully shot by the cinematographer Diego Garcia. 
he's obviously channeling well at least it feels like he's channeling sort of norman rockwell paintings and you know that sort of picture postcards depiction of the 60s but you know what that picture postcard they were actually unhappy but yeah if you've watched uh madman or red revolutionary road it might seem a bit like old hat and uh you know the people aren't that happy but they're supposed to be because it's like the 60s or whatever i don't know it's just very solid <laughs> it's a very solid piece of filmmaking everyone involved did a good job but I've watched 80 hours of Mad Men twice, so <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I get it. I get you know, it. the the housewife has her own life, and the guy is trapped by masculinity. You've got all these appliances now. You've got all you, these. You're living in this like Fordist consumer culture, but it's not satisfying you. Something like that. Yeah, it's just it's good. It's a good film, but three stars, would you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out of six. Putting, putting it right on the halfway point. Out of a hundred. <laughs> Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're going to hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat Widows. It's a thriller film directed by Steve McQueen, director of uh, 12 Years a Slave and Shame and Hunger. And he was an artist before that. Um, it is written by McQueen and Gillian Flynn and is based on a 1983 ITV television series with which it shares a premise. And one assumes that well, it has like some of the same character names and stuff. I didn't know that until I, after the movie. I was like, oh, it's based on an old 80s ITV show. Pretty yeah. cool. Um, Linda LaPlante. Linda LaPlante, indeed. Um, the uh, it's an ensemble piece. There's a lot going on, but uh, the sort of main crux of the plot revolves around Viola Davis's character, who is married to a kind of uh, high class criminal played by uh, Liam Neeson called Harry Rawlins. And a job goes wrong early on in the movie. Given the title, it's probably not a spoiler to say that uh, the, the the Rawlins crew is sort of decimated in this job. And she is left to fend for herself um, and ends up in trouble with another sort of local gangster who uh, who wants uh, money back from her. And she has been left plans for an exciting heist um, by her uh, deceased husband uh, and then decides to conduct it with a group of the other women who were left widowed by their dead uh, criminal husbands. Meanwhile, the gangster who is like coming up to Viola Davis is himself running to be the alderman of a particular precinct in Chicago. Um, and is running against Colin Farrell, who's a sort of slick uh, politician dude. And he's got his own shit going on. Here's a clip of Viola Davis uh, categorically asserting that <laughs> they have the balls to pull this off. Our go date is in three days, the night of the debate. Now, all of our work is worth nothing if we don't move this money in fast. The notebook says $5 million. That's exactly the amount of money Mulligan was accused of taking in commission kickbacks. So over here, we have $2 million, 20 Tupperware boxes. Each box has $100,000 in $100 bills. It weighs 44 pounds. Now over here, we have $2 million, 40 Tupperware boxes. Each box has $50,000 in $50 bills. It weighs 88 pounds. I feel like I'm in school. Tell me about it. We got to start thinking like professionals. We're in business together. There's not going to be some cozy reunion. After this job, we're done. We have three days to look and move like a team of men. 
The best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. You saw this at London Film Festival? I did. It was and, the opening film. Uh, and I saw it. I did not see it at London Film Festival. The film festival, I saw it at the cinema a few days ago. And I don't know if you'd primed me by already telling me that you found the movie a bit like underwhelming. But that's also how I found it. Good. If the hive mind is a little too uniform on this. I enjoyed watching it. I was never really bored in it. It's a very, very slickly made piece of work. And it's kind of interesting to see Steve McQueen move into uh, more sort of pure entertainment style genre, genre fare, working with, uh, I, I said Gillian Flynn, didn't I earlier, but it's Gillian Flynn. Yeah. The uh, most famous writer in Gone Girl. And so he's you know delivering more pure genre thrills with this like quite pulpy premise uh, and a number of plot twists that are also straight out of like crime thriller, airport novel sort of territory. But it's all done in this like, ultra high class style with like beautiful photography and an expansive ensemble cast of mega movie stars and i just found the whole thing a little bit too easy to watch and ultimately i found it kind of lacking in tension which is the the basic thing you need for a thriller (laughs) yeah Uh, it just didn't really grip me um and i just found it more like a pleasant like a kind of perfectly created piece of furniture or something like (laughs) that you know like everything is so crisp and i think mcqueen's style which is in his well i've only seen i haven't seen hunger but i've seen um shame in 12 years a slave and he has this kind of stately kind of lyrical quality to his filmmaking which does not like obviously mesh with a thriller and he feels like he's moving out of his comfort zone perhaps deliberately for this movie and i just felt like his approach to the material did not perfectly meld with what he was trying to do things kind of glide along in a way that is not conducive to uh, a thriller and that when like moments of you know excitement happen too often they came they come really suddenly and then they're resolved very quickly and although he does have his like trademark long shots and stuff i just didn't find that it had that like nuts and bolts quality you know that like kept me like really invested in the movie yeah um so i, I think there is like there is a conflict between this very um classy uh, presentation and then when the occasional like when there's real plot mechanics that kick in and you kind of feel like oh here's the gillian flynn side of things you know because silly like silly things happen in the movie yeah like just i mean the, the whole premise of it is yeah, rather, it's very pulpy it's very pulpy and it is rather silly and every time that one of those things happens it kind of reminds you of what kind of movie you're actually watching and it feels like not a movie that steve mcqueen is especially interested in I think he's much more interested in, like, the inner lives of his character. I mean, I feel like I'm painting this in very broad brushstrokes where it's like, he's an art house director and he doesn't understand, like, how to, you know, shoot exciting guns or whatever. It just, there's a lot of lingering on people's, like, expressions and their minds and their inner lives. And it's a very broad cast. And a lot of characters get a lot of screen time, who even if they're quite minor characters. And it feels like he's trying to create this whole world of people and their intersecting lives. And they're all interesting. And there's rich people and poor people. And there's so much <laughs> stuff going on um and uh ultimately he was more kind of interested in like painting this portrait of all of these people's lives than he was in like delivering an exciting thriller and the plot of a silly thriller kept kind of vaguely getting in the way of that yeah i think that's exactly it i don't know i knew it was a mini series going in i don't know if that colored my viewing of it but it does feel a bit like six hours of tv that's been i didn't know that uh oh you mean because it was based on a mini series yeah oh i see right i thought you meant like yeah he'd made like, it more. yeah yeah going in like so um this you know two hours plus whatever but it's like like trying to cover all this stuff 
he doesn't really cover any of it in much depth and it's all kind of, kind of a bit thrown in there it's a bit gestured too yeah which i've it's kind of my problem with steve mcqueen in general i think he just is good at making a sort of atmosphere in like broad strokes it's just like Ooh, meaningful yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah yeah i just think it basically comes down to the structure like the actual you know it builds to a heist which is i think heist is really overselling it <laughs> Like she gets this, uh, you know, the plans from Liam Neeson, and it's like a whole book. And it's like, what was in that book? Because when you finally see the heist, it's like, yeah, it's like a back of a leaflet, isn't it? He's left you a post-it note. <laughs> I think my favorite bits of the movie were the sort of out-and-out more genre elements. Daniel Kaluuya is the best thing in the movie for me, and his role is sort of like evil hitman who's very casual about being evil like you know if you ran a piano bar and he turned up he would start playing piano while he was stabbing you or something because he's so chilled out about violence yeah and every one of his scenes is identical but they were all really great (laughs) just because by sheer force of charisma he made his character really memorable and menacing and i also liked elizabeth debecky because i think she out of all the widow characters was like I mean, it's such a sort of classic movie thing, but she's a bit vulnerable and she has the biggest arc. You know, she is the most sort of downtrodden in the start of the movie and she grows the biggest balls throughout the film. Whereas Viola Davis is so commanding that, like, I just can't imagine her not doing a heist. And it meant, in some ways, it's almost like bad casting because it's like, <laughs> of course she can pull off the heist. The amount she's... of natural authority she has is just, yeah. Um, she's implacable. I didn't, I, one problem I have watching it is I just didn't really buy that the other widows would do the crime. I can understand why Viola Davis would do it, but I didn't really understand why the others were doing it. Yeah. The weird, like, the odd thing that it reminded me of, in a way, was American Animals. They both feature quite similar heists, um, like, in terms of how they play out, oddly. Um, And they all feature uh, four amateurs who do uh, this, like, they steal something, you know, um, and they have to, like, work out how to do it, and they try to be meticulous about it. But in American Animals they're all just like a bunch of idiots and it goes like horrifically wrong as you'd imagine and the best part of the movie is watching the you know all their meticulous plans like horribly unravel immediately uh, whereas in this film it's, it's still a group of people who have never presumably done they're not violent people and they're not they've never done a crime before um and yet they're extremely competent and that's only really believable if we're in this make-believe fun thriller mode you yeah know, where just cool shit happens because it's awesome like that's the kind of stuff that's going on in the movie um, but we're not in the real world, Sam. But we kept being... talking about race relations exactly. in modern America. The movie kept telling me how real the world that it was set in was. I do just kind of like. I know this sounds so wanky, but I kind of like the idea of the movie more than the film in a way. It feels like Gone Girl was like the last kind of adult thriller, like mm. a sort of entertaining movie aimed at adults, which sort of grap- you know at least attempts to sort of say something. And these movies are kind of rare, and I quite and like you, I think I just enjoy the experience of watching it. But it's just like the trailer was pretty fucking epic and the movie is pr- kind of a bit dull. It's one of those trailers <laughs> that seems to contain every moment of action, basically, Yeah. in the film. The movie does not have the same atmosphere as the trailer. And, I mean, again, I, he- I hesitate to do this because it just seems quite dismissive, but I feel like the movie is in the shadow of Gone Girl a little bit. Yeah. Know, which is not a film which, ha- you know, there's some stuff I'm sure it's saying about, uh, like, American culture, and you know, in there that you could pick out. Yeah, Cool Girl, yeah, the Cool Girl monologue. Yeah, but uh, obviously that's not, like, the main focus of the movie. It's just, like, a really exciting mystery, you know, with uh, interesting characters tearing strips out of each other in enjoyable ways. But I felt like Fincher has just put that movie together really, really well and is, like, just delivering on the level of, like, 
just sort of cinematic enjoyment that Steve McQueen isn't. I know Do you think not, it feels like a bit like he's above days. that kind of stuff? Well, I don't really want to say that <laughs> because it just sounds like, you know, like... Yeah, it just it sounds a bit too simple to say that, but I do vaguely feel like that's the case. I don't it's, know. It means or maybe he can't do it. It's a hard thing to do, you know? Not yeah, every yeah. director can do every kind of movie, and I just feel like he, maybe he's just not as good at doing this as he is at making other kinds of films. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, not, ama- like, not amazing, really. Sort of like something where if you wanted to go out on an evening and just see something that would be enjoyable to watch and, will you know, there's fun performances in it and... Uh, you know, it's it's by no means an unpleasant film watching experience, but not amazing. Yeah, not amazing. And we we want to see amazing films, and I want amazing from my movies. Yeah, McQueen. When Zach heard something that changed his life, what he listened to. When John Cusack made a mistake for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? When Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. Fucking ages. How long have we done for? Hour and ten minutes. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Well, we don't have any and finally thing, do we? No. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> we join just, us. We, sorry, we've just realised how long we've been talking. Join us next time. We'll be reviewing Outlaw King, The Bad of Buster Scruggs, another Netflix, another Netflix films, <laughs> <laughs> and Iron Fist season two. Join us then. Join us then. Goodbye. Goodbye. Good. 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 Goodbye. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. Bye, mate. See ya. Now, if you're wanting to watch The Mandalorian completely spoiler-free once it debuts on Disney's upcoming streaming service, we suggest you travel to the other remote desert planet, Jakku, because there be spoilers ahead. In these on-set photos, we see what looks to be a desert town or spaceport, probably Mos Eisley from the looks of it. And in these photos, we see a few stormtroopers are milling about. And, and wait, who's that super tall dude hanging in black armor? Well, 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 it's one of our favorite new, old enemies, a Death Trooper! The Death Troopers are a recent addition to the Star Wars canon and were made famous by the prequels. Okay, not the prequels, but a prequel by the thinnest of margins, Rogue One, where they were predominantly seen hunting down Jyn Erso in the opening tease of the film, as well as on the ground battle on Scarif. So, who are these black Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.